From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington. I am here to tell you that our values, the nation, Christian roots, and family can be successful in the political battlefield. We made these values successful and mainstream in Hungary. Don't worry, a Christian politician cannot be racist. Why is Hungarian strongman Viktor Orban such an irresistible and inspiring figure for American conservatives? His recent talk at CPAC in Dallas may provide some clues. And we'll call on the journalistic detective skills of Sarah Posner to get some understanding of this unusual alliance. A survey this month from the Pew Research Center found 29% said they had no religious affiliation. That's up six points from 2016, with the millennial generation leading that shift. In recent years, it seems we keep having to report on ways that sectarian religion, specifically a conservative political strain of Christianity, is one of the biggest threats to true religious freedom for all. But there are a lot of moving parts enabling those worrisome trends, and the perspective of religion journalists can be invaluable in gaining an understanding of how the role of religion is changing in this country, as well as changing the country. Bob Smetana is a longtime religion writer, former editor-in-chief at Religion News Service, and the author of a brand new book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. We'll get his insights on this week's State of Belief Radio. Hey, there's this press over here that allows you to talk about LGBTQIA issues in your stories and talk about gender equity in your stories and that welcomes those kinds of values and worldview. And there seems to have been a hunger in the marketplace for it. The more the traditional and social media flood us with information, thanks to the access we give them with always connected technology at our side, the more many of us long for a chance to slow down and take things in a bit more authentically. While book-length publication may seem almost quaint to younger generations, there are publishers willing to gamble on expanding their business, and that includes diversifying what they produce. On this week's show, you'll hear about an ambitious plan to get progressive, faith-oriented stories on American bookshelves from Rebecca Seitz at Chalice Media Group. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, Information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. In May, we reported on Matt Schlapp and his American Conservative Union, long a megaphone for painting progressives as traitorous globalists, bringing the Conservative Political Action Conference to Budapest, Hungary, and celebrating the relentless dismantling of Hungarian democracy by strongman Viktor Orban. It's an ongoing source of grave concern for observers around the globe, but not for the U.S. right-wing activists and politicians who shared the stage with a prime minister who urged them to mimic the, quote, Christian conservative success of his nation. 
Earlier this month, the CPAC gathering in Texas amplified these Christian nationalist themes and welcomed Orban back to the stage for another chance to put the vision these purported patriots have for the future of our nation. Journalist and author Sarah Posner has long been sounding the alarm about the goals of the American political religious right, so she was the least surprised at the applause Orban got for the rhetoric like claiming the West is, quote, locked in a clash of civilizations. Sarah, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thanks for having me again, Jack. Orban welcomed American conservatives to Hungary in May, and his authoritarian speech there guaranteed he'd be prominently featured at the CPAC gathering on U.S. soil just a few weeks ago. Is this a growing alliance, or is he simply an effective speaker pushing the boundaries of what American conservatives could actually say? This is a, this is a growing alliance between Orban and the American right that has been in motion for several years now. Um, the alliance was sought out by American um, political strategists and consultants, and likewise, Orban sought out the assistance of American lobbyists in burnishing his image to American audiences. So he hired lobbyists to portray him to the American public as um just a regular old conservative like American Republicans um, who was under siege by liberals and you know political correctness and the like. So this has been going on for a while and it's really reached a fever pitch now with the very formal handshake of attending each other's CPACs uh, in, in Budapest and in uh, Dallas. I actually wonder if there are any boundaries at all on what extremists can get away with saying and still find a home in today's conservative movement. I'm wondering the same thing. Uh, Just before he went to Dallas, Orban gave a speech in which he decried um, the mixing of races uh, and um, that Europeans wanted to stay European. This prompted one of his top ministers to resign in protest, saying that this was pure Nazi talk. And it was. (laughs) Um, And so if pure Nazi talk is not enough uh, for uh, CPAC to cut ties with Viktor Orban, I'm not really sure where their line is. So tell us who else addressed the CPAC gathering and what was the overall tone? There were a number of usual suspects that you might see at a CPAC gathering, um, you know, Republican office holders and Republicans who are running for president, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and the tone was combative and the tone was also um, in line with a lot of the um American right-wing rhetoric at the moment, that they are the ones who are persecuted and under siege by the deep state or by wokeism or by the tyrannies of liberalism that are, you know, supposedly trying to dictate how everyone thinks. Did anything stand out for you as either hope-giving or hope-crushing? There was no hope-giving there. Um, As far as hope-crushing, I mean, I guess... Just the fact that Orban was there, just the fact that one of his own ministers 
accused him of sounding like a Nazi, which he did sound like a Nazi. Um, And so that gives you very little hope that there is a line that the American conservative movement or the Republican Party as a whole will draw. And we've seen other evidence that they're really not drawing that line in the comments of many of the Trump endorsed candidates who are running for office this year. And, um, you know, they're they're headed in an incredibly dangerous, inciting direction. And uh, it's it appears that there are no guardrails. Sarah, as we head into the midterms, I know some of the arguments tested at gatherings like CPAC will find their way into mainstream campaigns. What should we be on the lookout for? Some of the the some of the predominant themes in many of these campaigns are first and foremost um, an adherence to the stolen election lie. Second, an adherence to the idea that liberals or woke people or wokeism um, or gender ideology is or groomers are coming for your children and that public schools are a place where your children are going to be indoctrinated with globalist leftist uh, propaganda. Um, And, you know, we need to work to restore the Christian nation. They're going to be pressing those themes. But I think that they're also in recognition of the unpopularity of the Dobbs decision going to be running from their own records on abortion, where they have opposed throughout their political career any abortion rights, but they don't want to talk about that because they know that Dobbs is incredibly unpopular, as are the laws that, you know, the trigger laws that came into effect immediately after Dobbs or any of the laws that are being passed right now in red states. Um, So they're going to run from that, yet at the same time, they're going to focus on these other, um, other culture war ideological clashes that they think have proven so potent for them uh, in the last couple of election cycles. Sarah, you have a new article out on Talking Points Memo called The Christian Right Plots How to Avenge the FBI Raid. Uh, we're, We're sort of mystified at the continuing hold that Donald Trump seems to have on the activist wing of the religious right. Can you talk about that a little bit? For them, he is still the anointed leader. He is still the leader that God chose um, to shepherd America through this uh, period when it's under siege by wokeism. Um, And that's basically the summary of, of how they view it. So they are all in with portraying any criticism or holding accountable of Donald Trump to be politically motivated or to be illegitimate in some way. And so the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago to me was a significant inflection point for them because they had previously, you know, been supposedly, apart from January 6th, on the side of law enforcement. Um, The FBI traditionally has been a bastion of, you know, white male Christian dominance. Uh, And I think that this really struck a chord with them or struck them as unacceptable because an institution that had long been, in their eyes, a defender of their cultural dominance 
in their view, had turned on them or had turned on the anointed leader. Um, you know, Charlie Kirk, the the conservative campus activist who's increasingly becoming far more popular in evangelical circles, you know, he basically called Mar-a-Lago, you know, you know, hallowed ground. He 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 said that they that the FBI had desecrated it. So they're really continuing to imbue Trump with this um, messiah status and to really attack anyone who may try to hold him accountable for wrongdoing, because in their view, he cannot engage in wrongdoing. And they're discussing him as being persecuted by the deep state or by the FBI um, at the same time that anti-Semites were attacking the magistrate judge in the case who had signed off on the search warrant, Bruce Reinhardt. Um, you know, he came under attack from anti-Semites. His synagogue had to cancel their Shabbat services because of these threats. Um, yet the religious right persists in portraying Trump as the one who's being persecuted. And with the Family Research Council building this massive media network, what kind of escalation of this rhetoric and proposed action can we expect? Well, the Family Research Council is probably the religious right's most powerful political organization uh, with ties to Republicans in Congress and Republicans in state legislatures around the country. Um, its president, Tony Perkins, is probably one of the most respected figures in the movement. And so it already has uh, a very significant uh, media reach um, and reach just through social media and um its relationships and ability to get um, very high level guests on, on their programs and at their conferences. So any uptick in, um, in its media reach through new newsletters or new radio programs or podcasts or even television would represent, you know, an even greater outreach and greater repetition of the kind of content that they push out to their followers uh, and they, too, are pressing this idea that, uh, for example, the raid on Mar-a-Lago was illegitimate, that we can't trust the FBI. I think that they're going to just continue to press the idea that any any investigation that holds Trump accountable for any alleged crimes is 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 illegitimate. And I think that when you have built a base that believes that God anointed Trump um, to say that uh you know, duly authorized law enforcement officials are illegitimately investigating him is actually quite, quite dangerous and potentially inciting to a lot of people. Sarah Posner is a reporting fellow with Type Investigations and author of the books, Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind, and God's Prophets, Faith, Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Values Voters. Sarah, thanks very much for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, veteran religion writer Bob Smetana, whose brand new book is titled Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. And later, a new progressive Christian fiction label from Chalice Press. You'll meet Rebecca Seitz. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance.
Veteran religion journalist Bob Smetana is an award-winning reporter and Pulitzer grantee who has become one of the most respected and well-known religion reporters in the country. With the depth of knowledge that comes from decades focused on faith in our culture, Bob's got a comprehensive new book coming out on Tuesday titled Reorganized Religion, the Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. And I'm happy it brings the author back to State of Belief Radio. Bob, thanks for being with us again. Oh, really great to be here. Listen, before we dive into the phenomena that you explore in your book, I want, I want to ask you about the dedication. Uh, who is Heidi Hall? Oh, Heidi Hall was a, a dear, dear friend of mine. She was a uh, award-winning journalist and a force of nature, a barn-burning journalist. She's also got a remarkable story. She was uh, a couple things about Heidi. She was about six foot three, redheaded, loud, and in charge, but also a very dear person. But she's a remarkable story. She was a Jehovah's Witness. Her mom had joined the Jehovah's Witnesses at a real crisis point in her life. Her mom's life was falling apart. The church saved her. And then uh, Heidi grew up and had some questions about the church. And um, because she had questions, she was uh, disfellowshipped. She was thrown out at um, 18. And at 18, she started, Who she didn't go to college, but she started working as a journalist and um made herself this career and she made it, you know, for a long time, she was uh, uninterested in organized religion, but she found religion later in life. She also found this community of people who've been thrown out of their church together, mostly LGBT folks. Um, So she had this wonderful journey and then she got cancer um, and she fought it. And then it came back. Uh, But she tells this great story uh, when she got uh, cancer, the doctor the first time the doc, she said to the doctor, well, I guess I got a couple of years to live. And the doctor said, no, you should prepare to live for as long as you did. And that's what she did. So she's uh, one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Well, I'm glad we can lift her up before we get into the substance of the book. Bob, from mega churches and mega churches to evangelicals and nuns, N-O-N-E-S, Christianity in this country has undergone enormous changes. When did this turmoil begin, and what did the changes you focus on accelerate? It really began post-1965. Well, let me step back. It's been a long time. So for the majority of the um, U.S. history, it's been mostly white, mostly Protestant country. So when I was born, 85% of people in the country were white. Most of those were Protestants. and But it's always been changing. So for a long time, you've had competing groups of Christians trying to tell each other what to do. You had Protestants and different kinds of Protestants. Then you had Catholics. Uh, I really started paying attention, though. Uh, there's been a real change since I've been on the beat. I've been on the beat since 1999. When I started, the average congregation had 137 people. Today, they have 65 people, which is an enormous change in 20 years. And that's happened for a number of reasons. It's happened because people are less interested in um organized religion in general and institutions. It's happened because of changing demographics. It's happened because of scandals. It's happened because of political polarization. Um, one of the things we've seen is that those, the world that those congregations were built for, which is mostly white, mostly Protestant, doesn't exist anymore. We live in a more pluralistic, diverse uh, country 
where people are, have no religion or people of different religions and Protestants are all kind of peers now. And that's a big change. Um, I noticed it in particular a few years ago. I had been covering um, uh, disaster relief. And if you know anything about disaster relief in this country, it's almost much of the volunteer work is done by religious groups, Jews and Mormons and secular people and Methodists and Baptists. So I'd gone to one of these big events where there's a hurricane. All these people from different faith groups are cleaning up. Then I come back and I read another story about the nuns, which are the rise of people with no religion. And I think, wait, I just came from a place where there were mostly older white folks and religious folks doing all this work for their neighbors and regardless who their neighbors are. And now I realize they're all going to die off. And when they die off, they'll be gone. And who's going to take their place? Very interesting. You know, there's a there's a clear tension between religion, which is inherently interested in consistency, and the evolving society that we we live in, which is constantly changing. Religion can do the work to change society, or it can try to do the work to preserve society. During the time you write about, does one approach come out on top more often than the other? No, they're in tension with each other. It's the really interesting thing. Um, there is one, one problem right now for religious groups is they have, they have what uh, one sociologist called the Hamlet problem. They're used to being the star of the show. They're used to be religious leaders are used to being telling their congregations the way they should believe and shaping and leading the organization. They're used to having some level of respect in society. They're used to having um, some of the values of the country in line with their own. And all of a sudden now that's different. They've been displaced from that. They realize they're not the star of the show. They're bit players and the drama's going on around them. And they're kind of doing one of those two things. Some of them are saying we have to adapt and how do we, um, you know, both retain our vitality and be an asset to our community. And some are saying, no, we don't want to adapt. We want to actually resist that. So that's one of the tensions we see right now. We have folks who want to retain their place in society as leaders and want to say that society should shape and be shaped by their values, even though people are not. And so they want by um, force or by power or by elections what they used to get by um, voluntarily. Interesting. You, be, you began and, and have continued talking about the relative homogeneity of organized religion in post-war America, and that played a central role for, for most Americans. Even a lot of folks who never went to church were very comfortable in a culture that was dominated by people who looked and thought the same way that they did in white American Protestantism. So do you think that growing diversity in America has helped make American Christianity as we remember it? more attractive to people in those groups, even if it's, in some cases, mostly nostalgia? It's That's a very interesting question. It is, um, there's two ways to answer that. So one reason why America remains as Christian as it is, is because of diversity. If there were not large numbers of immigrants, most of whom are Christian, Hispanic immigrants, for example, most of whom are Catholic, the country's uh, level of religious engagement would go down. We'd have more nuns because most of the nuns, at least in the 
the disaffiliated folks from religion right now are white. At the same time, it's there's a real tension between the way that white Christians in particular and Christians of color, black and Hispanic, see the world around them. The folks who are white and Christian, if you ask them, for example, Michael Emerson, who's a sociologist at the University of uh, Illinois at Chicago, who's written a lot about race and religion, would ask, do we have have a race problem? And what problems with race in America? All the white Christians would say, no, everything's great. All the everyone else will say, no, it's not quite that way. So you have um, congregations that need to become more diverse. So most congregations, there's about one in four congregations that are now considered multi-ethnic, which is important because you can no longer build sustainable congregations on mostly white Christians. But when new people come in, they bring in new ideas. And that brings tension because they have the same beliefs, but not the same way of um, views of social uh, the society, about politics. And so those things are intention. So you uh, have both uh, a need to bring in people who are diverse and this kind of growing tension that the diverse folks are going to say, now, wait, everything is not as great as you think it is. And what happens when they say that is there's a real uh, sense of hurt or backlash against that. And, and is this something that is, that is inevitable um, as diversity has accelerated in our culture or is there a way out of, out of it? It's the good question. That's the question of what do people choose? So religious groups have always adapted to new places and new times and new cultures. We see them all over the world. So the question is, what will people choose? Will they choose to say we're in a new place and we have different sorts of folks and how do we best express the values of our society or of our beliefs, excuse me, how do we best express the values of our belief in this place in this time? Or will they say, no, we really want to make sure that our group is in charge. And I saw this most um, powerfully, actually early in my career as a religion reporter. This is back in 2008. I covered the recovery from a tornado and a mosque burning on the same day. Hmm. So there's a tornado uh, on um, Super Tuesday in 2008. In, in Tennessee, it kills about 30 people, knocks over the most of the small town. So a few days later, I go up to the small town of Lafayette, Tennessee. I see all these people, again, faith-based people doing all kinds of great things. They're feeding people. They're cutting down trees. They're cleaning up. They're helping people sift through the rubble of their lives. This really kind of wonderful um, social engagement and, and help when there's a crisis. Finish the story, drive home. I get a call. You have to go to Columbia, Tennessee. It's an hour south of Nashville. The mosque was burned down. And there the mosque has been burned to the ground. And it on the uh, on the concrete foundation are the words, white power, we run the world. And I think, oh, there's an image. Like that has been has stuck with me for a long time, the way that religion can work. It can be, there's a crisis. We run and help our neighbors. It can be, we, this is a religion. These are people we don't want. We're going to, and these were white nationalists that did this. But in Nashville, that mosque burning, in the years following it, there was a huge anti-Muslim movement, which is mostly very powerful mm-hmm. white Christian folks who didn't want Muslims around. So you have this kind of tension. What will they choose? Do they want to choose to help their neighbor or do we want to choose a place that uh, only is interested in, where religious people are only interested in their own influence and power? So, Bob, we often see signs that a relentless focus on culture war issues on the part of some religious denominations uh, 
have have been a driving force behind disaffection and disaffiliation, especially among younger people. We've had a lot of guests on this show talking about that, as you know. From the perspective of the big picture, which you address in your book, is that true? It is and it isn't. So most people who disaffiliate, disaffiliate because they, they don't believe anymore, the tenets. But that's a complicated thing because in um, religious sociologists talk about three things, belief, belonging, behavior three things and they're linked so sometimes people believe more than they belong they belong to a group they don't believe everything sometimes they um believe everything but they don't belong to somewhere and the and the behavior has to do with like the rituals and the coming together but increasingly there is a kind of uh, purification going on especially among protestant groups where uh it's transactional if you believe we love you if you believe every single thing we believe. And if you doubt one thing, then you're out. Uh, and that has grown as, to, as folks try to purify their version of whatever the faith is. And so there is, there's some of that. There's a, there's a, one of the folks I talked to basically said, it's hard to go to church with people who think you're the devil. Or another one said, they don't love me anymore. Hmm. And that, that's, that's related to this. I, they love me until I said, wait a second. Um, so there is that kind of, um, culture war things. There's also the, the very interesting thing that um, in older congregations, for example, so so if you look at the country's demographics, um, a lot of the older mainline con- congregations, for example, they, uh, they stopped having children or as many children. And those children don't come to, to church. Or if they do come, they come later. So there's also been kind of a birth rate um, change. And that it used to be the idea that liberal congregations would shrink and conservative congregations would grow. There was a, this was a long-held kind of tenet. And it turns out that everyone is shrinking, mm-hmm. uh, in part because they don't have as many kids and those kids don't go to church. So you really have um, – and the kids who do go to church are kids from diverse backgrounds. Very interesting. I, you know, I, I, I wonder, are non-Christian – religious people surrogates for the internal struggles of Christianity in America. When you say you can't belong here if you don't believe everything we believe, um, has has the attention turned to people who are not Christians and who therefore by definition don't believe what we believe? There's some of that. There's certainly a, there's certainly an idea that uh, this is idea of Christian nationalism, that in order to be American, you have to be Christian. What's really interesting is just this past week, I was at a group called Interfaith America. You may be aware of them. Used to be Interfaith Youth Corps. Used to be Interfaith Youth Corps. I'm with all these young people. Some were Christian, they're Hindu, they're Muslim, they're pagan, they're all kinds of different. They're Jains, they're Sikhs. They really believe in America. They really believe that all people are created equal. They believe that there's a place for them. They believe in the idea of America. So there is a real, there's some real hopefulness out there. Um, That goes back to the beginning of the kind of aspirations of what the country is going to be. But there is this kind of um, idea that if if you're not one of us, you're against us. But you also have this kind of other tension. I'm very, the book has made me hopeful because people, even people who think that, right? So even the people who think that for example, uh, you know, who are kind of Christian nationalists, they also support all kinds of organizations that help everyone. They have this kind of dual thinking, right? They don't all 
think this all at the same time. We have a lot of chatter on social media. We have a lot of political chatter. And then we have like, how do people act day to day? So I'm, I'm more hopeful about how people act day to day. And there are lots of um, examples of people from different kinds of faith groups getting along and working together. But it depends. Do they want to choose that? Do they want to see that person as someone who is equally a part of the culture? And can we build something together? And do you think that uh, that the American tradition, the American legal status of freedom of religion will will improve as a result of this majority-minority culture that believes in America, or are we still going to struggle with that? We're always going to struggle with it because we have this kind of great tension between no having no established religion and uh, a robust free exercise. And we're going to see lots more of that. So I'm a religion reporter. So I, you know, I'm a First Amendment fundamentalist, as you might say, <laughs> right? I, you know, freedom of the press is extraordinarily important. Freedom of religion is really important. And having no established church is really important. So we're going to have more tensions about this. The great part about this is we have decades and decades of and centuries of practice of figuring out how different religious folks, folks can coexist. And can and what are the circumstances in which um, you have religious people have to follow generally applicable laws? What, what when can you make accommodations? When you can't make accommodations? So there are all kinds of ways to do this. Um, I kind of the bigger worry for me is actually that organized religion will actually decline to a point that we miss it. So one of the questions. Um, that I got from Ibu Patel from Interfaith America that I use as well is what would happen if all the religious groups in your community disappear? Who will run the shelters? Who will run the food pantries? Who will host AA meetings? Who will be there when people die to host funerals and weddings and all the kinds of things that the social capital of these groups do? And my more concern is that religious groups will just disappear. So if the average congregation was 137 people and now it's 65, if 65 people is hardly enough people to keep things going, if that goes to 30 in 20 years, then all these groups may just disappear. You you actually speculate on future scenarios for the American church in your book. Can you can you mention a few of those? Yeah, so one of them, we are probably going to see a lot of congregations close. Um, you're going to see more diverse congregations. I've seen... Um, some really wonderful things or really interesting th things happens. One of the most uh, well-known congregations in America a few years ago was a church called Mars Hill. Mm -hmm. Very big, you know, Christ very aggressive Christianity, muscular Christianity, manly Christianity, <laughs> in-your-face Christianity uh, with a pastor named uh, Mark Driscoll. They were going to take over, you know, Seattle. And in 2007, they started kind of crumbling. Even though they're at their height, they start firing people. And pastors and the church really only had a few more years before it imploded completely right across the the uh channel from them in seattle it's this little church called interfaith bay covenant church very small older white folks they're hosting uh they rent space to a young kind of up-and-coming multicultural church they are dying too but they know it and they say wait that our congregation is not going to have a future here. These new folks are reaching our community. They have a future. We're going to give our building and ourselves to them. They join that church. Their church disappears. Now it becomes a church called Quest Church. So when Mars Hill closes, guess who buys their building? <laughs> 
Quest Church. And guess who the first person to preach in there is the woman, Asian American woman pastor of Quest Church. It's the first woman to preach in that space. And they have a kind of thriving congregation. And they are planning more churches like that. So you can have that. You may have churches that close. You may have churches that are going to be in conflict. That say, um, so right, right now, and if you look at the, the conflict, what, what happens in a crisis is this. People either say we're going to fix it or they turn each other. And we see this, if you look what's happening in the United Methodist Church, what are they doing? They're fighting over human sexuality. But they're fighting as that church is sort of slowly imploding. So they may end up fighting and be done with fighting and there's nothing left for them. Southern Baptists, another, they're big, you know, giant, they're fighting over race and politics. What's going to happen when they're done with fighting? Will there be anything left? And all kinds of other groups are in those kind of moments of um, what are we going to, you know, we're fighting over really important issues. LGBT inclusion, very important. Race, very important. The kind of set of politics of the country, important issues. But if they, folks turn on each other and fight each other so much, the whole thing falls apart, then what was the point? Yikes. So I have one last question for you, and we're running a little short of time, so I, I can't give you as much time on this as I'd like. But uh, a book-length project like you wrote uh, with Reorganized Religion can bring unique insights and unique headaches. When you think about writing your book, what are one or two things that you learned or discovered you didn't imagine you were going to learn going in? Oh, I learned something about my mother, huh. which I did not expect. I did learn this. And so one reason I, I wrote some personal things in the book because I figured I can't tell other people that they should care about organized religion unless I kind of lay my cards on the table. But I discovered a number of things about my mom, which I did not know. And here's one of them. So my mom in 1950s, uh, I'll make this short, is uh, she's a child of uh, immigrants, very poor family. They've got very little money. She's a very good student, but can't go to college. She's going to go be a mill worker in Fall River, Massachusetts. If you know anything about I do. textile industry in yep. New England, it's gone now. Yep. But she could have been a mill worker. Except at the last minute, her high school guidance counselor says, there's a scholarship at St. Luke's Hospital, which has a nursing school. Would you like to go there? Because you qualify. She gets a scholarship, changes the course of her life. She becomes a nurse, professional, really blossoms as a person, becomes has a wonderful impact on her life. So, I always thought that was a Catholic hospital. It's it's in New England. New Bedford is a Catholic area. No, it's an Episcopal hospital. Started by Episcopalians. Episcopal Sunday School in the 1800s says, hey, we need a hospital. They start, uh, they start a hospital. They start a nursing school. Do you think those 1800 Episcopalians really were excited about Catholics? No. Were they thinking, I want to help the children of Catholic immigrants go to school and have a better life? No. But they did. They built this thing, and years later, it impacts my mom's life in a completely unexpected way. And I think that's the thing that stuck with me is that so many of our lives are affected by religious institutions and, and organizations started by religion that um, that we had nothing to do with. Hmm. They were started by people <laughs> decades ago, and they were for our benefit. So what will people do now that will be for the benefit of people in the future? Imagine if she had had a scholarship from Mount Sinai Hospital. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she could have had that, right? She could have, right. had, she could have Mount Sinai. She could have all kinds of other people who started this. Is the, I, this is if I was excited at the end of things, 
it's that um, so many, we have religious tension. We have lots of problems and they're not going away. And people, what they decide right now will make enormous difference in the future. And we also have this long history of people, religious groups, starting institutions that were not just for themselves, but they were for the whole community, right? We don't have, it's some, we have some religious groups that just let their own people in, but very few. Most of mm-hmm. our institutions say, we're going to build this thing and you can come be part of it because we think it's important. So I'm, I'm hopeful because of that. I don't think that's going to go away. It's a great message. Bob Smetana is an award-winning journalist and Pulitzer grantee whose work has included time as news editor at Christianity Today and who today serves as the national reporter at Religion News Service. His new book is titled Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters, which is out on Tuesday, August 30th. Bob, thanks so much for being back today with us on State of Belief Radio. Really glad to have been here. In the past few years, we've seen overtly Christian publishers reject manuscripts from popular writers due to insufficient anti-LGBT content or other cultural war policy violations. More than one of those books have found a home at Chalice Press, and regular listeners have heard several conversations with the editors and writers involved. Now, Chalice Media Group is launching a new division, Chalice Stories. And I'm happy to be joined by Rebecca Seitz, who's heading up the project. Rebecca, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me, what exactly is the premise behind Chalice Stories? Well, the idea was that we see, as you've talked about here on the show, you know, there's a bit of a takeover of even the word Christian in the culture, mostly by far right-wing evangelical people calling themselves Christians. And so they're creating content with that mindset, including stories. And, you know, we've all heard the Irwin quote of, you know, he who tells the stories rules the culture. And so it's really important that we have stories out there with what we believe are life affirming, life giving, life enriching kinds of ideas. And so we decided to step into the story space. It's been interesting since we said that we were going to, because um, it seems like there was a bit of a a dam of stories that had been building up and people were sort of just waiting on Chalice to step into the space. So it's been really fun since we said we were going, going to do this, but that was the impetus behind it is I've always said, having been in this business for 20 years, if you want to teach someone, then you write nonfiction. If you want to get someone to think of a new idea, you tell them a story. So that's what we're going to do. So how do you differentiate what, what Chalice Stories is publishing from what's currently being published? Well, it's kind of easy for me because I started in the business on that other side. I started as the launch publicist for the fiction line of Thomas Nelson Publishers back in the day. Uh-huh. And then I had a PR firm that handled key titles for every major Christian publishing house in this nation. So I'm really familiar with what they're all putting out. I'll bet. Uh, and by, by those, you know, I mean the Zondervan's, Moody's, Tyndale's, you know, of the world, Baker, all of them. For us, um, the difference internally, not to get to inside baseball, but the difference for us from how those publishing houses go about um, determining what fiction they'll publish is we do not approach our content creators with a list of restrictions. 
For instance, um, the very first novel that's coming out of the Chalice Stories line will be in May of next year, and it's called Welcome to Triumph. It's written by two actual clergywomen. One of them is UCC and one is ELCA. The three main characters in this story that will maintain throughout the series are clergywomen themselves. And in that, that book comes with a content warning of sex scenes, language, and drug use. Because our pastors, when they were writing, had a guiding force of pastors or people too. And we don't want to shy away from that. We want to paint reality the way that it is. We don't want to be prurient about it. And we're not, you know, that's not what we're doing. But character development, like actual human development, happens in all areas of our life. And so we include all areas of our life in our stories. And that's very different than, you know, our contemporaries over on the more religious right side, <laughs> we'll say. <laughs> I I think we've seen just how popular Christian fiction can be and how influential it often is. Did you act, actively analyze that that influence, that approach when you were building Chalice Stories? I did not. Um, honestly, you know, stories have been my entire career. Uh, it's just always been where I feel most at home is writing. So I'm a writer myself as well. So writing stories getting others to write stories, curating stories, promoting stories, releasing stories. It's just kind of what comes naturally to me. And I just have sort of an internal thing that I rely on of these are powerful stories and they could affect change in the culture. They could help people. And so we should get these stories out. But you know what? There are Christians that have been writing over on the ABA, on the general market side, ever since publishing started. And there still are right now. I mean, if you've ever read a Dean Koontz book, Dean Koontz is a faithful Catholic man, and that worldview is in his stories as well. It's He just happens to publish with an ABA publishing house. Same for Charles Martin. Charles started at Thomas Nelson. I was his first publicist at Nelson. Now his books have been made into huge movies. The Mountain Between Us, I think, was his last one. And I think he's at an ABA house right now, a general market house. So it's there are people of faith who are publishing from that worldview and that set of values. They just aren't all doing it with CBA, Christian Bookseller Association houses. What is the audience that you're targeting, and what kinds of stories are you working on publishing? Uh, some of that I can tell you, and some I can't yet, but um, <laughs> what kinds of stories are we publishing? Relevant ones. Um, ones that story lovers truly love to read. I mean, we're not in a specific genre. We happen to have acquired in the beginning, I told you about the very first novel, which is a women's contemporary, but the one the month after that in June is a historical that's written by USA Today bestseller Nicole Evelina. And it's a fictional tale about the founder of Sisters of Mercy, Catherine McCauley. Um, so it's the genre is not really uh, as much of uh, a determining factor for us right now as it is the content itself. And we're looking for stories that the worldview that they start with is one that we believe if it were in place, we'd all be living better lives right now. So I, I used, I've said to a lot of authors, like I watched Schitt's Creek. I don't know if your <laughs> listeners watch that show, but I made it through the first two not so exciting seasons to the rest of it. But one of the things I really appreciated that Dan Levy did in that series is he presented a world where there was acceptance and there was true and authentic care amongst those characters. It was just a world that we would all enjoy living in. And there was never a question of why is this world this way? There weren't arguments about that world being that way. It simply was. So we're sort of fascinated by that idea of let's tell stories that take place in worlds that we would want to live in. You know, it's interesting. I, 
as a rabbi, um, I've been exposed to a lot of books, especially from Zondervan, because they mm. they marketed to to clergy in a variety of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I, I remember clearly getting a fictionalized version of the Book of Esther that included, oh, wow. yeah, it included, um, it included a section of contemplating on the coming Messiah, clearly an, an insertion <laughs> of okay. the impending coming of Jesus into a story that happened hundreds of years before that, according to <laughs> I'd love to, to know Bible. how they, how they did that. <laughs> I'm sure the book is still on their list. <laughs> is is there a proselytizing aspect to uh, Chalice stories like there is with Zondervan and some others? Or, no. So it's, it's <laughs> simply a narrative of the experiences of people in, as you said, a world we'd like to live in. Yeah, it's one of the things I enjoy about um, the Disciples of Christ, which is the denomination that we are affiliated with is this wholehearted acceptance of and willingness to live in a place where we're all walking out our faith. We're all figuring it out. Nobody's walking down this journey going, well, I absolutely know this, and therefore the rest of you have to conform to it. It's just, I appreciate, I've so appreciated when I, in coming to Chalice Press and learning about how this denomination handles differences of belief and faith and walking it out. And so our fiction looks like that as well. There's no, you absolutely have to check off these boxes and that's going to get you into heaven. There's none of that stuff. Um, there's nothing about Jesus, the second coming in our fiction. Never will be. This is not the house of left behind. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, all, all respect to Jerry. It's just not what we're doing. <laughs> you know, on, on a more general topic, I know that there are enormous challenges to book publishing in this age mm. of short attention spans. What made print seem like the right way to go? Well, it is not the only medium that we are working with now. I don't know if you saw that we also recently announced Chalice Voices is launching in January, and that's our podcast network. And some of those are scripted shows. Um, I have a background in creating those in my own company. So scripted podcasts are like old radio dramas where you have actors uh, mm-hmm. bringing characters to life. So some of ours will be scripted like that. And some will be unscripted, which is probably a little more what your listeners are familiar with. Sounds just like this, like your radio show on, on podcasts. Um, so we are going to be in that medium as well. And then in, in several years from now, our hope is that we can continue expanding even onto screen with film and television and streaming. Um, but that's in our you know multiple phases down the road. But one of the reasons that we wanted to stay in print where we are is because it is a medium that still reaches the masses. Um, is it as large as it used to be? It's not. And right now in the publishing industry is only projected to grow 1.2% year over year from mm. this year to next year. But that's still growth, which means people are still reading books. And we still want to make certain that we've got material in front of them that we think leaves them a better human and the nation a better nation just for having engaged with it. Wonderful. Can you talk about some of the other authors you've connected with to get Chalice stories off the ground? I can't some of them. I can't all of them yet. Um, I was really excited to find Nicole because we wanted to come out of the gate with, you know, a big name. And she is in the historical space. Um, A lot of people know her from The Presidentist and um, some of her other work. 
that Nate that got her to be a USA Today bestseller. So I'm pretty stoked about having Nicole as a part of it. We are adding more writers to the Triumph County series as we speak, some of them with larger known names and platforms than others, because with that series, the intention is to release at least two books a year in that series. So we've got the first hmm. one coming in May. The next one comes out in November and is a Christmas read. It's a holiday read. Um, I can't tell you. It's oh, it's so frustrating when I come <laughs> on. I'm like, let me tell you all this great stuff. And well, I'm like, well, it's just a guarantee we'll have you back. That's all. <laughs> there you go. Let's do that. <laughs> I'm on board with that. <laughs> um, no, we. I'll, I can say genre wise. You know, we've we've talked to a sci-fi writer. We've talked to some romance writers, more women's contemporary writers. We um, also have a gentleman that the ink's not drawn his contract, so I probably can't say his name. But it's a really cool. Like if you liked. Um, what was that book? Oh, Wag the Dog. Remember that? Sure. If you like, you know, political intrigue kind of thrillers. This one, the politics, uh, it's really based in church politics of someone getting elected to the presidency within a particular denomination and all the politics that were involved in that. Um, but it has that kind of, you know, political wag the dog kind of a feel a little bit to it, I think. So these are these are names that people who are avid readers are going to recognize. Some of them, yes. I mean, I've, I've been really lucky and fortunate and blessed, insert your adjective here, to have gotten to work with some of the pretty big names in the business over you know my couple decades in it. And what's been really fun for me is to go to them once I came to Chalice and say, hey, there's this press over here that allows you to talk about LGBTQIA issues in your stories and talk about gender equity in your stories and th that welcomes that kind of those kinds of values and worldview. And there seems to have been a hunger in the marketplace for it. I've had two agents that have approached me and said, you know, I've got this giant list of authors that have just been waiting for something like this because their material won't get published by Nelson and Zondervan and Lifeway and all of them. So, yeah, I think you'll probably recognize some of these names going forward. So that's that's great because we know that uh, Chalice Press has been an invaluable home for several books that were overtly rejected by conservative Christian publishers. Mm -hmm. uh, I presume there's a similar story when it comes to fiction. That seems to be what you just said. Um, can you talk about some of the voices or at least some of the issues you hope to amplify through the publications at Chalice Stories? Well, I, it's probably going to end up quite similar to what we cover in nonfiction because the issues are what the issues are. You know, we're always looking at issues of racism, issues of gender equity, issues of um, sexual equity. Um, orientation equity. We're always looking at places to level the playing field for, and I'm doing air quotes, the other, you know, that is, sure. is usually ostracized by some of the other publishing houses. You know, I had a very good friend of mine. He's been in the business probably 40 years, uh, mostly over in film and television. And he and I were talking about a big job offer that he had gotten from one of the more hardline right media outlets. And he was struggling with it because he said, I know they want me to go create this television series for them. And I know what I'm not going to be able to put in it. There won't be representation of minorities. There won't be representation of women in leadership, especially over men. There won't be any of that. And I said, yep, that's a really hard call because that's part of the problem. Do you want to go be part of the problem? Yeah. You know, it's not making the world a better place. And so that's really the kind of thing that we want to focus on with our fiction line, which is the same thing we focus with on our, on our nonfiction line. It's that idea of, there is a beautiful way that the world works. It's obviously not working that way right now. We all know that. We all feel that. So if we can have a part in getting it to that more beautiful place with our stories, because storytelling is how you shift things, 
that's what we want to be a part of. How can people who are listening to this program learn more about Chalice Stories and where your books will be available? Um, right now, you can go to chalicemediagroup.org uh, will get, get you there or chalicestories.com, I think, will get you there. Um, you'll see at the bottom of the website, which we recently underwent a whole brand refresh that went live just a couple of weeks ago while I had COVID, which was so much fun. Very nice. <laughs> doing a whole brand refresh while I was sick. But um, I say that to say if your listeners go today, it might not look like that in about 30 days. But for today, at the bottom of the site, you'll see all of the news. And part of that news is the launch of the fiction line. There, they can get in touch with me via the website as well if they have story ideas. I'd love to hear about them. We're actively acquiring. So, so people can contact you if they have an idea for a story and would like you to consider them. Yes. One of the beautiful things here at Chalice is we do not require you to be represented by an agent to work with us. Um, I know a lot of the houses do. A lot of houses I've worked with in the past do, but we just don't have that requirement here in place right now. What you will need is a book proposal. So it's not really helpful to just send me your book ideas. It's more helpful for me to see a fully fleshed out proposal. And that way I can really ascertain and take it to the team here and figure out, is it is it going to be a good fit with the line? And if so, when and where? We can have a conversation about it. You packed a lot of information into our brief conversation here. I really thank <laughs> I you for that. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I can talk a mile a minute and I love this, so I can talk about it all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca Seitz is manager of the new Chalice Stories imprint at Chalice Media Group with a focus on fiction that exemplifies progressive faith as lived through questioning, doubting, succeeding, loving, knowing, failing, giving, accepting, earning, receiving, caring, surviving, and thriving. Uh, <laughs> not necessarily all at the same time. Or in that order. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, best of luck with Chalice Stories, and thank you for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.